0: Welcome again. Welcome to the Story Houston. If it's your first time, special, special welcome for you. Uh, Thank you for uh, braving uh, the Houston heat and our insane parking situation uh, and somehow finding the Story Houston. I wonder how many people try to find us and just give up at some point uh, because uh, in this gym, it's a little bit tough if you're not familiar with St. Luke's to find us, but man, I'm so glad y'all did. And I'm not sure how it would have fit Anyone else? So maybe it's God's plan for some people not to find us today. <laughs> uh, but thank you for, uh, for being here and for being a part of this. This is our ninth part of a nine-part sermon series. Uh, on friendship, and if it's uh, if it's your first Sunday and you're like, wow, I'm catching part nine of nine, uh, don't worry, we really do plan each one of these to be kind of freestanding, and, uh, and in its own way, I hope today's message will uh, be beneficial to you and to your relationships. We've been talking about platonic friendships and up to this point, last week we talked a little bit about dating. Today we're going to spend one week at the end of this series talking about marriage. It applies to less than half of our congregation right now, less than half of the story Houston is currently married. Most most of our adult population here is single or uh, single again, and uh, and so uh, you know, marriage uh, may not feel like it resonates directly to you right now, but I bet if you take some notes and really take uh, what we talk about today into your prayer life, that this will benefit not only your other relationships now, um, but also if you do get married, uh, you'll uh, be more prepared. I hope. That was my prayer as I uh, prepared today's message. All right. Take your study guides out now. We'll get to work on today's uh, message. Uh, we have quite a bit of ground to cover uh, because I only had one chance to talk about marriage, and I wanted to say uh, all of it. So uh, anyway, uh, we're going we're gonna to cover some ground pretty quickly here. Um, so take your study guides and you can follow along with me uh, on, on those. Um, you probably have noticed that in our culture, um, marriage has gotten a little bit of a bad rap. If you listen to most of the metaphors that we have and most of the things that we say about marriage, they're almost all negative in nature. Uh, the old ball and chain, we call it. That's not a good thing. That's slavery is what that sounds like. Uh, Forced servitude. You know, that's how we sum up marriage. We think about marriage as like it's a a giving away of your freedom, forfeiture of your personal happiness, those kinds of things. Chris Rock, the comedian, said you have two choices in life. You can be single and lonely or married and bored. (laughs) And I think, uh, unfortunately, that's how many of us have been taught to think about marriage. Like you live your life and then you get married. You know what I mean? You settle down. That's what we call it. I want to question all of that and really call that out as a lie straight from the devil's mouth. If that's what we think uh, marriage is, we're selling marriage short. But that is definitely the prevailing winds of our culture, especially when you put the word Christian in front of marriage. Uh, Non-Christian people think Christian marriage is like the perfect storm for death by boredom. You know, they think that uh, that Christian marriage looks a lot like uh, the Cleavers, you know, uh, Ward and uh, and June Cleaver from the 50s uh, sitcom Leave It to Beaver. You know, they never fought. They never, uh, uh, you know, flirted. There was one episode where Ward put his arm around June and, like, people lost their minds. They were like, what is happening to this? This is just unbelievable passion, <laughs> you know, and uh, they slept in separate beds. And I think that's how people think theoretically about, like, Christian marriage, um, especially people who are, who are not believers. Uh, they think that Christian marriage is kind of a culturally forced, coerced kind of a thing and... It's two people pretending to be happy and fulfilled when on the inside they're repressed and they really just lay awake at night wondering what it would be like to fall in love with your soulmate because this guy ain't it. You know, that kind of thing. Like, like, I think they think we are secretly unhappy, unfulfilled, resentful, and frigid and forced rather than being fueled by, by passion and love. Our Christian marriages are fueled by shame and duty. And I i got to tell you, there's not much that upsets me more than when we Christians prove them right by the marriages that we lead. When Christian marriage looks no different fundamentally from everyday marriage. Because it should. And if it breaks my heart when Christian marriage turns cold and hypocritical, it's got to break God's heart, too, because God invented marriage to be something so much better Can you imagine inventing something and then having someone else come along and just completely mess it up, completely pervert what you initially intended, especially the people that should get it the most, get it the least sometimes. Can you imagine like inventing like Tex-Mex and then walking into Taco Bell? And like everybody's having the Taco Loco Nacho Dorito thing. Like, this is not what I intended. You know, that's gotta be, when God looks at some of our marriages, it's gotta be how he feels especially Christian marriages, because we should get it and we don't sometimes. To give you a little bit of a hint about what God intended, this is, this is the beginning of what God intended for marriage. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's on your screens, it's on your study guides, and it's, for those of you A students, it's in your Bibles that you brought with you to church. Uh, anyway, first Genesis, the first chapter, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Here we go. It says, God said, let us make humankind in our image. So God created humans in his image, male and female. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. This was the first commandment for marriage. For married couples, the first command was what? Was it be religious and dignified? Oh, it was be fruitful and multiply. What's God telling, commanding married people to do exactly? Does anybody want to blurt it out? don't when I said do I have to say it in the 930 service a 10 year old said no please (laughs) not even lying it's my favorite 10 year old in the world (laughs) creepy old man (laughs) you know Uh, anyway Uh, so this is God's first command to married people be fruitful and multiply thus saith the Lord do a little dance make a little love get down tonight (laughs) down tonight thank you thank you there's a few of you that are with me all right excellent good job all right so this is God's first rule first law for marriage now I'm not saying that marriage is all about making love and making babies but I do believe that God's original design for marriage was something liberating and good and pleasurable and joyful and wonderful and experiential and multi-sensory and all these wonderful things. And when we have marriages that are anything less than that, we are missing the point. Adam and Eve had that for a while, didn't they? In the Garden of Eden, they seemed very happy. They're always naked together and they look great naked because everything that they ate was organic. And they they were like not, they have kids and all this. They were just, you know, doing the thing. And, and they were happy, and they, they were in love and all this stuff. Um, but, but all it took, you ever noticed how all it took in Genesis 3 was one little mistake? One little innocent opening that they gave the devil. And that, that was all the devil needed to destroy a marriage. Do you realize married people and those who will soon be married or one day you'll be married? And some of you know this very well because you've been married. Your enemy does not need something egregious to happen to get a stronghold in your marriage to bring your marriage down. He doesn't need you or your spouse to do something totally awful beyond the pale. All he needs is one opening, one little mindless moment, one little hand in the door, and the devil's hands are like little Donald Trump-sized hands. All he needs is one little, <laughs> one little opening, and he's there. And then he's there. And if you don't watch it, it'll be there to stay. And that's what, that's what happens when Adam and Eve give the enemy an opening. It drives them apart. Immediately, they go from being this free, liberated, loving, whatever, couple in the garden, prancing around naked together, to turning on each other immediately, from one verse to the next. There's an opening for the devil. The devil's there. And suddenly they're turning on each other and God says, Adam, what happened? And Adam's like, don't look at me. This woman you made, she's the worst. And then God says, Eve, what happened? And, and, and Eve's like, "I don't look at me. It was, it, the devil made me do it. And, you know, they're, they're diverting blame and, 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 and turning on each other. Uh, and suddenly they don't want to be naked. Have you ever thought about that? This occurred to me this week. The reason that they wouldn't want to be naked. Who do they not want to be naked in front of? not not the aardvarks and duckbill platypus things you know they don't want to be naked in front of each other there's too much stuff there there's too much baggage now they don't want to be exposed and vulnerable with each other anymore and and so the, the, their nakedness becomes a problem they're ashamed of themselves and each other. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, suddenly there's hostility between them, where before there was none. And if you've lived this before in your marriage, you know exactly how that feels. It's like, where did this hostility come from? We loved each other. You look back on your wedding pictures and, man, what happened to that day? What happened to that happiness? Where did this hostility, resentment, contempt come from between us? It really doesn't take much for it to get there, just a little bit of an opening. But what I want you to see is that from the very beginning, marriage has been a struggle. And every marriage struggles. If you're here today and your marriage is struggling, do not feel like you're an outlier. It's perfectly normal. Take a breath. Others that are sitting around you have been through that and worse, and they made it. Okay? So it's normal to go through it. The question is, what happens um, when you go through it? I think it's especially normal today, and this is uh, me just uh, hypothesizing. I have no quantifiable data to back this up. This is a feeling, but I feel like marriage is harder now than it's ever been. At least successful, like lasting, lifelong marriage is harder now than it's ever been. Some of the reasons why it's harder now to have a lifelong marriage that doesn't end in divorce uh, is some of the reasons are good, right? So I own this fact that it's good that Women today have a voice about their own well-being, their own future, right? If a woman is in an awful situation in a marriage, she has a voice, she has a power to walk away. I think that's a good thing, right? If there's something cyclical and awful happening, she can stand up for herself and leave. That's a good thing. But most of the reasons why it's harder to have a lasting marriage than ever are not so noble. They're a little more selfish. I'll walk us through a few. Uh, Real quick, these are uh, on your uh, study guides as well. The number one reason why I think it's harder now than ever to maintain a lasting marriage is because our culture, our cultural values, core values in our culture have shifted from we to me, from we to me. Now, what this means is that uh, it seems obvious that when it comes to our decision-making processes, the defining criteria, criterion, Uh, for our decision-making has become your personal happiness. That is the ultimate litmus test about whether or not something is good and worthy, if it makes you happy. We actually believe now, which if you step back and look at it with some perspective, it's crazy that we believe this, but we believe if something makes you happy, it must be good. And if something doesn't make you immediately happy, then maybe it's not good, maybe it's bad. And uh, this is indicative of the shift that we've seen um, in our culture. It has become such a given that we've actually forgotten that this phenomenon is brand new to the human experience. Never before have humans been so me-centric in our our decision-making. Never before have we said, my personal happiness matters more than our collective good. This is brand new, right? Me before we. Uh, 75 years ago or so, uh, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, a little more than a thousand people uh, died at Pearl Harbor. And in the weeks after that, the United States declared war, right? And uh, there were 11 and a half million young Americans that were drafted into the war. What's even more amazing than that number is that there were six and a half million more young adults in America who volunteered to go and fight, most, mostly overseas on behalf of their country, on behalf of us, the we factor, right? Six and a half million. And if you think they did it for the money, they got $71 a month, which was less than the average income at the time, $200 a month, more than $200 a month with the average monthly income. These guys got $71 a month to volunteer. The average time that they committed to serve their country was 35 months, nearly three years of their young lives given for some cause greater than themselves. 162,000 of the 6.5 million volunteers did not make it home. They paid the ultimate price. Now, I feel a little bit tentative about this, what I'm about to say, because it's a little bit apples and oranges, but I gotta gotta say this to illustrate a point. 9-11 was about three times worse in scope than Pearl Harbor. And yet, you don't see the same kind of groundswell movement of volunteerism to stand up against whatever enemy or darkness we're fighting as a country. Do you? And I know you can say, well, it's a different kind of war. Okay, well, it's a different kind of leadership. Our presidents today, they're no Roosevelt. Well, okay, maybe. But what I sense beneath it all is a culture shift. That says I matter more than us, and the me stuff matters more than the we. Whether it's whether it's you know country or church or you know family, even this kind of thing has just taken hold of us, uh, and and me has become more important um, now than ever. Now, what's important today is the way that this matters to marriage. And this matters to marriage in that uh, what happens is that two people come to the altar, more often than not, both expecting the exact same thing. Bride and groom both come to the altar, kind of simultaneously, subconsciously, each expecting that the other person's first priority is the fulfillment of my happiness. (laughs) Which is, it would be fine if just one of them thought that and the other one was on board. (laughs) But they're both thinking that. That the other person's existence, the reason for the other person's existence is my fulfillment, the needs that I have being met. And, and my happiness matters most. Well, the other person is thinking that too. My happiness matters most. And then they come to this uh, utter, you know, devastating realization one day that they've married someone who thinks they are important, as important as I am. And that is where uh, marriage uh, finds its difficulty. That is one of those forks in the road for many marriages. The second thing that I see happening in our culture is a a weaker cultural accountability. In terms of marriage and divorce, we have moved culturally from scandal to celebration. The comedian Louis C.K. said this about the five years since his divorce. He said, they've been the happiest years of my life Marriage, he says, is like a larva stage for the true happiness of divorce. Marriage is for however long you can hack it, but divorce, divorce is forever. No one ever says, oh, my divorce is falling apart. I don't know what to do. We laugh and cry at the same time, I hope. Because as usual, Louis uh, describes exactly what most people think today about divorce. Marriage is what what you do to be tied down. Divorce is what you do to be liberated, to be free, to live again. This is the cultural acceptance of something that used to not be so acceptable. It used to be, not long ago, that walking away from a marriage and a family was a great big deal, socially. And that unless there was some real pattern of problems or sin or some addiction or adultery or some kind of abuse happening. If you just walked away because you were unfulfilled or because you were bored, you had a price to pay socially. If you were a man, your peers would hold you accountable. Your church oftentimes would would scorn you in some way, at least for a time, for a season, there was a little bit of of some kind of a pushback, some kind of a, a shame that came upon you in these situations. If you just walked away because you weren't satisfied you wanted to go find something better. or Maybe you'd already found something better. Whether you were a man or a woman, there was some kind of public um, shame, I suppose. And that's not the case anymore, obviously. Uh, Now, uh, many, many people, probably some in this room, would say, hey, that's a good thing. It's never a good idea to shame people. So we don't shame anybody (laughs) anymore, Um, which I understand why there's this backlash against all shame. Because look, the internet has messed it all up. Because now the internet has given license to cowards sitting in their mom's basements to shame whoever they want and without even knowing the people that they're shaming but look in the context of community true community especially Christian community there has to be such a thing as healthy shame that's what accountability is it's telling the truth sometimes truth is hard when people make utterly selfish choices that leave hurting people in their wake especially children which is often the case in these situations, there must be some cultural accountability. And there's less now than ever, and I think that's why uh, it makes staying married a little harder than before. Third and finally, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the third one, it's basically because of number one and number two, because uh, we've shifted from we to me and your personal happiness matters most and because there's very little social accountability, we have moved from dignity to depravity in terms of the temptations that we face. All that I mean is that if your if you're driver, if your core value is going to be your personal happiness and if no one's gonna tell you that it's wrong to do that at all costs, then you're naturally going to be driven to seek things that make you happy at any given moment. And that's the root of depravity. That's the root of, uh, of selfishness. And so uh, we've, we've made that move as a culture. So for these three reasons and more, obviously, marriage has gotten harder. If you're married, you know this already, that every marriage is going to experience more problems than you expect it to Here's what I want to discuss today is the the difference, right? The difference, because some couples encounter the struggle. Some couples come across the storm and it brings them closer together. Y'all know these couples? They go through something hellacious and you go, how are they going to get through this? And they come through it stronger than they were before. While other couples go through something awful, an unexpected loss or a death or infertility or or a loss of a job. and, And you think, how are they going to get through it? And they don't. And in my experience as a pastor and as a friend and I love people who are married and trying to make it through, the difference is the friendship that two people had before the storm. The storm you go through as a married couple will magnify whatever relationship you already had before. So if you've done the preventative maintenance to get closer together as friends, if you've had the the date night, if you've stayed close, if you've enjoyed each other's company, if you've fallen in love with each other's soul and not just their body and, and the storm comes, you will be galvanized and brought closer together and you will be stronger for the storm. But during this season, the good season, the easy season, the pre storm season, if all you've done is expected the other person to meet your needs, if all they've been for you was someone else to use, if your personal happiness is still your God, then when you go through the storm, it's going to tear you apart because you have no bond, no friendship to get you through. That is the difference is friendship. So all the eight sermons we've talked about to this point, everything we've said about friendship applies directly to marriage. Married people. And people that want to be married one day. All the stuff we've said, that friends show up for each other, friends stand up and defend each other, friends speak up for each other, friends hold each other accountable, friends encourage each other, all of that stuff applies to your marriage now, so that when the storm comes, you will be ready. Paul unpacks this for us a little bit the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uh, he talks about God's choosing to be friends with us, to, be, to make us his friends through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And This is what he says. Follow along with me. This is really important, guys, for marriages and for all your relationships. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, since we're justified by faith in Jesus... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we now stand. We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us and reconciled us to God through through his death. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Now, I know um, as we read this passage, for those of you who have been in the church a while, this is very familiar territory for you. You think, I've heard this before. But I'm telling you, I've been in the church all my life, I've preached for 16 years, and I've always heard this passage preached from an individualistic perspective. We always have read this as if this is about your personal suffering and your personal endurance, your personal character, your personal hope. But look at what Paul does here. He is not speaking in a singular sense. Paul is speaking in a plural sense. He is talking about community and relationships, and more specifically, I believe he could be talking about marriage. So if you're married or if you're in a a committed relationship, go back and read this passage as one person, together. Read it as though you're reading it from the vantage point of your relationship, your marriage. And think about what it could mean that the suffering you endure together, the suffering of your marriage, can produce the endurance of your marriage. And the endurance in your marriage produces the character of your marriage. And the character of your marriage is what gives you reason to hope. And hope will not disappoint you. Because of what Jesus has done, this can be so in your marriage. Now, married folks, this only applies to your relationship if you fundamentally understand and get how the gospel works. I'm going to give us a real crash course in what the gospel is. It's very simple. The gospel message is this. Every time you've been selfish, every time you've been at your worst, making selfish choices, God in Jesus Christ became selfless. Every time you've drawn back out of your own insecurity, your own resentment toward God, God has drawn near to you through the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name to call you friend. Every time you you have uh, tried to distance yourself, from God, God has said, no, that's not who you are. You're not my enemy. I know you think you are. You're my friend. And he's given us a choice every time to accept his proposal of friendship uh, through Jesus Christ. This is the narrative of the gospel. What I want you to know, if you're married or want to be married one day, is that this should be the narrative of, Of your inner life in your marriage. This should be the narrative of your relationship. Every relationship has a story. Every relationship has a narrative, a defining narrative. And I'm telling you, if the gospel is the narrative that defines your marriage, the struggles that inevitably will come will not drive you apart. They will galvanize you, they will bring you closer together. If the gospel is the Fundamental narrative of your relationship. Because in Jesus, God is saying that you were a friend to God even when you thought you were his enemy. Or even when you thought God was your enemy. He called you friend. You you were loved even when you were unlovable. Even when you didn't deserve it. Jesus came to claim you. Even, Even when it could be easier to call a spouse an enemy and declare war on your spouse because you are contemptuous and you're, uh, you're resentful toward your spouse. If Jesus and his gospel are your narrative, you choose to call each other friends instead. My question for your marriage today is that if the gospel isn't the defining narrative of your marriage, then what is? If the gospel isn't the defining narrative of your marriage, then what is? Because something is, I promise put together a couple of graphics that you can see. This is the first one. They're they're also on your study guides. I wanted to put them on the screens because they're they're pretty small. But in this first one, this is a cycle of uh, how marriages tend to fall apart. And I've seen this time and time again, and it's a little bit sad how much of a script uh, marriages that are falling apart tend to follow. There are the circumstances of life. There's stress, There's loss, unexpected curveballs come your way. The fact that you married a human being who does and says the stupidest things, but so did your spouse. Like they also married a human being that does and says the stupidest things. And what happens if the gospel is not your narrative, what happens to your marriage is that you begin to think this isn't right. This isn't what marriage should be. I should be happy. I should be married to my soulmate. And this person clearly is not my soulmate because she doesn't make me feel awesome about myself like she used to, like the girl at work does. So I should move on. What happens then is that you start to think that your spouse has been the problem all along. And I'm laughing because it's so ludicrous the way we convince ourselves that marriage is the problem. Our marriage is what's wrong. I wanna give you a universal truth, and y'all can leave a tip in the tip jar on your way out. Here it goes, universal truth about marriage. Marriage never creates problems. Marriage reveals problems. All the stuff you're dealing with now, if your marriage is in trouble, you had it before you came to the altar. Your husband didn't make you a bitter, almost said a witch. A bitter person? A bitter person? You had the bitterness in your heart. Your husband just has a gift of bringing it out in you, right? But it was there already. You already had that fault in your heart. And I always talk to men who are messed up with, you know, sexual stuff, frankly, and, and the, the porn thing is a big deal. And, and men always say, well, she just, she just, you know, it's, it's, she's not responding, to my needs, or she, you know, I, she's the problem. No, nope. You brought that brokenness, you brought that habit to the altar with you. So we can stop uh, blaming, you know, each other. But the fundamental difference between the me-centered marriage and the Jesus-centered marriage is this. This is so important. In the me-centered marriage, the me-centered spouse says it's her fault. Something's wrong with him. But the Jesus-centered spouse says I'm not perfect and I haven't loved her perfectly Jesus help me learn to love him how you love me you see the difference what I want us to know what I want you to know if you're married is that that love that Jesus centered love changes everything it touches. The idea that the person you're married to will never change, can't teach old dogs new tricks, once a cheater, always a cheater, all of those things are lies straight from the mouth of the devil. Because the love of Jesus changes people from the inside out. Now it might take time. You might be in a relationship now where you're like, well, I'm in a Jesus-centered frame of mind, but She's been in a me center frame of mind for years. I don't know how much longer I can hold out. I'm telling you, hold out. Trust Jesus and his love. There will be a breakthrough. And as much as it feels like a struggle now, there will be such a release later. And the release will far outweigh the pain of the moment when the breakthrough comes. Because Jesus and his love change people. Before you know it, she will be loving you with the same love and more as you've been loving her with. This is what I call fighting for the soul of your marriage. Do you know your marriage has a soul and you fight for it? We get this individually. We understand that my soul needs maintenance. I need to be proactive to make sure my soul doesn't end up in hell. I need to make sure I'm reading the word and I'm going to church and I'm praying and I'm being disciplined and all this stuff to maintain my soul, personal soul. We don't think about that in terms of marriage, but maybe we should. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus explains this. Uh, he, he has some religious guys that come to him. In Matthew 19, these religious guys say to Jesus, is it cool for a guy to just divorce his wife for any reason? I don't know if these guys were just unhappy or whatever, but I think they're trying to trap him actually. They, they came to test him, and they said, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And he said, have you not read that the one, this is God who made them at the beginning, made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. So what God has joined together, let no one separate. So these guys, these religious guys, they wanted a legal ruling. They wanted to trap Jesus by making him pick a side of the law. And Jesus gives them a spiritual truth instead. The spiritual truth is this, is that in Marriage, two people become one. I'm not saying your individualism is over. You can still leave your unity candle lit when you light the middle one and all that. Like, you're still a person. Don't worry, American young people. You're still an individual. But in a sense, the two of you become one. One body, one soul that can be saved or it can be damned. The lesson that Adam and Eve learned the hard way is that if God isn't using your marriage to save you today, the devil can use it to condemn you. If you're not allowing God to use your marriage to redeem you, the devil will use it to bring you down. Tend to the soul of your marriage. It takes the same discipline, patience, forgiveness, And love as your own soul takes. I know that there are people here in this room right now whose marriages are on the brink. It's just statistically obvious. There are people listening online who probably are wondering if this is it. If you're done because you're tired and wounded and hopeless. I am encouraging you now because I love you. And I've seen what happens when people hold out. Most of the time when people hold out and don't give up hope and don't give up the fight, they are glad that they did because the love of Jesus intervenes and restores what was broken. Not all the time, I understand, there are extenuating extreme circumstances. When it's better to call time of death on that relationship, and I support some of those circumstances, don't hear me saying that every case is the same. It's not, but look, most of the time, when it's just a matter of your own happiness and your own boredom or your own fulfillment or lack thereof, I'm telling you, hold on. Don't give up the fights. Don't be the kind of coward that caves to cultural voices that say your immediate happiness is all that matters. It's cultural cowardice. And you're better than that. There's a woman named Joy Davidman. She was born in 1915. She was born to an atheist, communist family in New York City. This is her on the left. She was uh, raised to be an atheist, and that's what she was for more than half of her life. She met an atheist man, got married, had a couple atheist babies. I don't know if that's even even true. I just made that part up. But anyway, uh, I'm sure they were nice kids. And so, um, you know, the... uh, she, she's married and got these two kids. And one day she comes across an article in the paper by a British guest columnist named uh, Clive Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Yes, I know it's Staples. Thank you. I'm a preacher. All right. OK. So I quote him every week in a sermon. So yeah, C.S. Lewis. Uh, these guys are like, it's Staples. OK. Uh, I love you guys. Uh, so anyway, the, she, she reads the article, right, and it, it stokes something in her mind. For the first time in her life, she's, she's like thinking about God. She's questioning whether she's got it right. So She goes and checks out some more of old Lewis's books. And by the time she's done with them, she has decided that she believes she's a Christian. Her husband wasn't about to have that in his house, and so he divorced her. She took the boys for a little getaway overseas to Britain for an extended vacation. She happens to run into C.S. Lewis, and they become friends. And for two years, they were the best of friends. Uh, they had matching IQs of a little over 150, I believe. So they met their match uh, in each other. And they used to talk about all kinds of things. He was a, a noble British gentleman. And she was a mouthy former New York atheist. And you know, they had a great time together and, until finally they got married. When he was a 58-year-old bachelor. And she was a 41-year-old single mother divorcee. Four years later, she was diagnosed with cancer. This is one of the last pictures they ever took together, because soon after that, she was on her deathbed. And her last words as she lay on her deathbed, as uh, C.S. Lewis was there with her, she said, you have made me happy, and I'm at peace with God. And then Lewis said, she smiled but not at me, and she was gone. A little bit later, Lewis would write this about their connection. We feasted on love, every mode of it. Solomon, Mary, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers. She was my pupil and my teacher, my subject and my sovereign, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man, friend, has ever been to me. Regardless of what you may have heard, this is real marriage. Two people coming together from very different paths to claim one life, one soul, together. Two people, two fellow soldiers joining forces against the devil in his darkness, two People simultaneously coming to the realization that life is not about me. Two people coming together to discover the most ironic truth that the only way to find true happiness in this life is to put someone else's happiness before your own. Two people coming together to celebrate life and all of its joy and all of its agony and all of its passion and all of its unemphatic slipper wearing, all the amazing things and all the everyday things. If you're single, let this kind of love be your vision. Let this kind of love guide your dating. Date toward this vision. Don't date aimlessly. If you're divorced, and maybe this has been a the most difficult sermon you've ever had to sit through, accept my apologies, I love you. But also, please know that there is no past that God cannot restore and that God can redeem your past and give you a future so amazing that you can't even conceive of it yet. And It will happen. Be patient. Continue to love others the way Jesus loves you. Finally, if you're married, fight. Not each other. (laughs) Fight for the soul of your marriage. Enter the fray. Husbands, if your relationship has been struggling and you're kind of sick of it and you're kind of sick of her and she walks in the room and you just kind of don't want to be there and you'd rather hold your ground in an argument than surrender and swallow your pride and you'd rather win the argument than than, than save your marriage and, and you're convinced That she's the problem. I want to tell you, husbands, with all the love in my heart, you are the problem. That's where your heart is at. You have become the problem. Go home, get on your knees and repent. Repent from all that hard-heartedness. And when you're done repenting, get up off your knees and go to your wife and say, I'm sorry, and ask her out on a date that you've planned as romantically as you ever planned a date. And if she says no because she's still mad at you, go to her the next day and ask her again. And again the next day and again the next until she finally says yes, wear her down in marriage like you wore her down in courtship. You know it happened that way. Do it again, fight, fight, it's worth it. Husbands and and wives, the same works both ways. Look, wives, if he's not becoming the man you thought he would, if he's not becoming the man you thought you were marrying, I want to give you the the simple task of going home and looking in the mirror and asking yourself if you are becoming the woman he thought he was marrying. Instead of just blaming him and resenting him, try asking yourself who you are and how you've become the woman he hoped he was marrying. And then try and love him, even though it might take every ounce of strength that you have left in your body. Try and love him the way Jesus has loved you. Tell him who you see in him. Let me rephrase that. Tell him who you saw in him when you married him. Remind him of the vision you have for his life, the dream you have for his life. Tell him he's the light of your world. Tell him what you saw in his eyes when you said, I do to him. Tell him you still see a glimpse of that in his eyes today. Because you might not have any idea how little he believes in himself. Because life and marriage and all that has worn him down, just like it's worn you down probably. It's what it means and looks like to take up your cross for the sake of your marriage, casting a vision the person to whom you said, I do. Choosing to be friends when the whole world would tell you that you're enemies. That's real marriage. And that is the gospel. Let's pray together. God, for the marriages in this room, for those especially that are going through a season of struggle, we pray for patience and love. We pray for the kind of grace and forgiveness that brought us close to you and called us friends of yours. God, God, for those that are struggling mightily we pray for patience and love to reign so that you can bring redemption and glory out of something so deeply painful and dark for those in this room who maybe aren't married but want to be one day help them to date with a purpose for those who were married and for whatever reason no longer are comfort their hearts Mend their wounds and prepare them for the bright future you have in store. We thank you for your everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.